This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Tony Black. Hi Tony, how are you? I'm alright wee laddie, up here in the <laughs> Midlands of, <laughs> of, of UK. Uh, now I have to say, if uh, our friend Lee Hutchinson... We haven't got Lee Hutchinson on this week, well, Tony. <laughs> if, if he's listening, he's probably just like cringing. So I'm so sorry, Lee, or to any other Scottish viewers, <laughs> listeners who are tuned in. <laughs> um, but I'm okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too bad. You're, you're good. You're good. We're, we're still in lockdown. I mean, I don't know when yeah. this is going out. Maybe, maybe the lockdown will have lifted by the time it goes out. But we're who still knows? suffering under lockdown. Uh, though at least we get to go out more than once every hundred years, unlike the the people that we're talking. <laughs> about today <laughs> they have a kind of lockdown of a different kind i guess it's felt as long at times i won't lie uh, <laughs> but it has done yeah. absolutely it has <laughs> it has what we're talking about today uh despite tony's accent is, is not uh sub rosa not the infamous uh <laughs> scottish episode of next generation but we're actually looking at another less infamous but perhaps uh you know, should be up there, episode of Deep Space Nine, Meridian. And Meridian was based on the 1954 movie Brigadoon, or, you know, I think you're right, really, it should be Brigadoon. Brigadoon. This is a film with (laughs) some quite exceptionally uh, ripe uh, Scottish accents in it from its, I assume, all-American cast. Uh, Fortunately, that didn't carry over into the DS9 episode. Maybe the only thing that could have made Meridian worse is if they'd all been doing dodgy Scottish accents a la the the Sub-Rosa planet. But um, this is an interesting one, I think. This is... It's, I, I was going to say, it's, it, you know, it's one of those things. Sometimes we have a classic film that inspires a classic episode. Sometimes we have a classic film that inspires a dodgy episode. Sometimes we have a dodgy film that inspires a classic episode. I'm not quite sure where this one fits, but I think most people would agree the episode that came out of it uh, was maybe not the success that it was hoped for. Um, but before we go into it, Tony, do you want to just give the listeners a little bit of background about Brigadoon the movie? Because I don't know about you, it's not one that I'd seen uh, before we started researching this episode, actually. A popular with Iris Stephen Bear, I gather, but not necessarily one that all our listeners will be familiar with. Yeah, I I had heard the, the name Brigadoon, but I hadn't really heard anything else about the film, which is based on a... Um, a 1947 uh, musical by uh, Alan J. Lerner, who 
was one of the great uh, lyricists of American uh, of, of the 20th century. Uh, American lyricists, uh, Lerner and Lowe was the partnership, and uh, he won loads of Tony Awards and some Academy Awards and things like that. Musical theatre, basically. So l- this was a big Lerner musical in '47, and it made its way to the uh, cinema screen, starring Gene Kelly, who was coming off the back of Singing in the Rain, which I think was either 52 or 53. So, you know, this was Gene Kelly at probably his most famous, you know, he's made an, Amer- an American in Paris as well, not long before that. So, uh, you know, he's a massive star at this point, well known for obviously his dancing particularly, and he's, you know, he's, he's singing and everything like that and his performance. And uh, he plays a, a two, <laughs> one of two Americans, um, the other one played by Van Johnson, who... Uh, for some reason are on a hunting trip in Scotland and become lost in the woods. <laughs> Quite how it happens. God, God only knows how they become lost in the woods. And they happen upon this uh, tiny little village called Brigadoon up in the Highlands. And uh, Brigadoon only, and as you've kind of alluded to earlier, only appears out of the mists uh, every 100 years for just one day. And it's this kind of sort of idyllic Highlands place full of, (laughs) full of these, you know, happy go lucky Scottish people. And inevitably Tommy, which is the Gene Kelly character falls in love with uh, a wee lass from the village called Fiona played by Sid Charisse. And, you know, that, that essentially becomes the through line of a story, which is played for musical theater. So, you know, you have, you have lots of uh, dance numbers. In fact, Gene Kelly's, uh, number two on Singing in the Rain, Donald, o- Donald O'Connor, who was another brilliant dancer, was supposed to be in Brigadoon as well, or he was tapped for a role in Brigadoon. Um, but it didn't happen in the end. So you can imagine the kind of, if you've seen Singing in the Rain, you can imagine some of the numbers you get in, in Brigadoon. There's this one particular number set in the village with, with, with a very clear sort of backdrop of <laughs> just painted Scottish mountains with, with they're all, where they're all dancing to. And it's, it's essentially just a love story. And it, it, it is all about whether, you know, Tommy will stay and uh, stay with Fiona and leave behind the real world and disappear into into Brigadoon. Much like the question as to whether Dax will stay on Meridian, stay on Meridian with, with the guy she meets. So, because Meridian, of course, similarly only appears not every hundred years. I think it's 60 years, they say, until the next time. And it, it doesn't last one day, it lasts 12 days. I mean, all the rules are kind of slightly slightly different, but basically the same idea, this this planet in this case that's going to come into existence. And, and there is, I suppose, something as well of that kind of the, the idyllic uh, kind of simpler life you know we always see in star trek this idea going back all the way to the cage really i mean we've talked about it before that these starfleet officers are kind of longing for a simpler life and this planet sort of seems to have that as well the community on meridian it 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 has it it almost reminded me a little bit of the community in insurrection actually and interestingly meridian's directed by jonathan frakes you sort of wonder is there a kind of is this an insight into what jonathan frakes's idea of like you know a, a happy uh kind of easygoing lifestyle is similarly i think there's something slightly kind of unbearably boring about it. I don't know if you felt that. I mean, yes, it's all very pretty and it's all very nice and they all seem like lovely people. And the, the same could be said of Brigadoon, actually. You know, is this lovely community full of all these, you know, charming Scottish people? Uh, there, there's kind of one bad egg in there who has to be dealt with, which we don't even get any bad eggs in the DS9 episode. But you almost sort of expect in that DS9 episode something to go amiss in terms of 
I mean, something does go amiss, but it's kind of beyond anyone's control. You sort of expect them to be hiding something sinister, if you know what I mean. Um, and in fact, they don't even hide what's going on. Unusually for a Star Trek episode, I think you've got this kind of mystery. I mean, in Brigadoon, it takes until, you know, probably good way into the film for them to get an explanation of what's going on. And they're sort of thinking, uh, there's something weird about this place. You know, we're sure it wasn't here before they start noticing there are sort of the, the dates of the birth of the, of the, um, people that they're meeting, they seem to be hundreds of years old and they can't kind of work it out. And in the end, this sort of funny old man uh, explains the mystery and the legend of Brigadoon to them, which is that it was uh, that this village that was being sort of attacked by witches and the, the priest, I think, begged for it to be um, hidden away, basically. So, so there's a kind of backstory there. In the DS9 episode, the backstory is, they're very upfront about it. They kind of explain it all pretty much in the first five minutes. Um, so they don't really play on any of that mystery. And there isn't ever a point really where someone, you kind of expect maybe someone's not being totally honest. Someone's kind of hiding something. There's some kind of, some kind of dubious secret about this apparently perfect society. In fact, the episode isn't really interested in that. It's not really interested in the kind of Star Trek-y side of it. In some ways, it's just, it's interested in this romance and this kind of tragic romance as it turns out, because, you know, obviously, spoiler, if you haven't seen Meridian, don't bother anyway. <laughs> you, you know, uh, it, it doesn't work out. This is it's DS9. You know, these things never, yeah. never work out. I mean, poor old Dax, you know, before she hooked up with Worf, we, we had a few of these episodes where she ends up basically. I mean, this has such a classic DS9 ending with Dax basically on the defiant, crouched in a corner, weeping to herself. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of, this is what, this is what you get on DS9. You know, someone has a little romance and then it just all goes horribly wrong and they're, and they're, miserable uh we got it again in rejoined obviously um but in this case it's because her her attempt to stay in this idyllic environment ends up almost destroying it and she has to kind of go back to her own people unlike gene kelly who magically seems to be able to change the rules because they keep saying he he has this moment where he has to make the choice he makes the choice he goes back to new york or wherever it is um and then regrets it and goes back sort of pining and, and magics brigadoon back into existence you know not a hundred years later but presumably a couple of weeks later through the sheer force of of love i, I don't think DS, DS9's view of, of love conquering all is obviously a bit more cynical than that. Uh, you, you know, typically what happens in DS9 is, is people fall in love and then something goes wrong and gets in the way of it and they end up alone and miserable. Well, in the film, in, in the film Brigadoon, as you said, I was Stephen Bear expre expressly wanted to do an episode that was essentially Brigadoon in space. After, uh, and since then, his quote, his very basic quote when he was asked about this was, I am a moron, <laughs> based yeah. on what happened afterwards. I am Meridian. Well, the, the extended version of that quote is even better. I, 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 in the DS9 companion, he's, they asked him about it. He says, I love Brigadoon. So I was idiot enough to say, let's do Brigadoon. I am a moron. <laughs> <That's basic. laughs> that was his take on it. You know, well, yes, I, I thought this was a good idea. Uh, the, the, the answer is should have been Brigger don't really. Brigger. <laughs> you know, this was not. This did not work out the way uh, Ira intended. And you know, I kind of loved. I mean, I obviously our show wouldn't exist if Star Trek didn't draw on all kinds of things. And I think DS Nine draws on particularly film, particularly sort of you, you know mid twentieth century film more than probably any other Star Trek. Uh, sometimes it works, as in the case recently. Justin and I were talking about uh, Ocean's Eleven and Butter Bing Butter Bang. Great episode came out of. 
that one. Sometimes, uh, you know, maybe however much the producer or the writer is in love with the source material, they don't manage to make it translate into the Star Trek universe. And, and it's not surprising, really, because the whole thing with Brigadoon is based on some sort of mystical sort of wish fulfillment because they're told that it's it's like a miracle that that is what's happening to Brigadoon. But the, the, the sort of mystical schoolmaster guy, Mr. Lundy, in the film, he recounts how um, if an outsider wants to stay, they must love someone in the village so strongly they accept sort of the loss of everything they know beyond Brigadoon. So the idea being that when Tommy does go back to New York and he's lost Fiona and when he realises that she's what she what he wants more than anything else, he is able to conjure it back up. You know, I think he's, he, Mr. Lundy eventually says, oh, you must really love her. You walk us up. You walk me up. As if to say, like, it, you, the power of your love, the, the force of your love brought this village back into existence against all the odds. Like you say, he cheats. You know, if you love someone deeply enough, anything is possible. Even miracles, he says. And he's like, well, okay, so how do you how do you translate that sort of whimsy, this romantic fantasy into Deep Space Nine or into Star Trek generally without it seeming really kitsch? Because uh, that's the thing with, with Brigadoon. It's like, uh, it's hard to say what it would have been like watching this. If there's anyone listening to this show who was alive and around in 1954 and went to see this, uh, and there could well be, to be fair, you know, be interesting to find, find out what you thought. Because at the time, I'm sure it was quite a, a sweeping sort of romantic, you know, epic sort of musical, um, MGM musical. But now when, when, it, when you look back with nearly 70 years distance, it is, it is extremely of its time. It is really, you know, like I say, kitsch and strange in some senses and extremely dated. And it would have been the same even in 1992. 95 when Meridian was coming around. So you realize, like, well, what, how, how do you transpose what that film is trying to say at that specific time, uh, you know, in, in the Hollywood studio era into DS9 with a show as, especially as well, which even though it hasn't quite yet found itself completely, it's in the, it's on the verge of doing that, you know, in season three, it's, 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 it's giving you episodes, episodes like The Search, you know, and The Gem Hadar and already, and it's giving you episodes like Past Tense, which is like a couple of episodes away. You know, these, these fantastic stories that really sort of tap into kind of what DS9 is becoming. But then Meridian feels like it could have been in any Star Trek series. It could have been in, it could have been an episode of, uh, it, it could have been an episode of the original series, actually, where Kirk or Spock find a Brigadoon planet and they fall in love with a maid, you know, a maiden there, you know, and then uh, it could have been that. It could have been an episode of, you could have done this with Riker, I think, on TNG, early TNG or someone like that and had him go down and fall in love with a, a lassie and then, you know, and, and I suppose it's it, it's a shame for Dax because Dax feels almost like the only character you could have done this with. I suppose you could have done it with Bashir, but then I don't know because that Melora story was pretty bad, you know, in season two, where they tried to do a romantic story with him. Dax just feels like a character who is so, like, at times, particularly before they really tap into her as a, as a kind of warrior woman with the Klingon aspect and Worf and everything like that. She feels such a, 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 a sort of wishy-washy character that you can pour into a story like this, which really doesn't do her any favours at all. 
and I don't buy the fantasy at the, the romantic fantasy aspect of this. I mean, for one thing, I don't I don't believe she'd fall in love with this guy after two days and <laughs> be willing to just give it all up. You know, give up her like twenty odd year friendship with Cisco with Kurt going back with Curzon. You know, and also why does Cisco just not go, Are you mad? Like what what are you doing? <laughs> like it's just there's so Cisco's many reaction is it's very different. Actually, I mean, if there is a comparison with the uh you know, with the <laughs> the, the the mad Scottish planet in, in Sub Rosa, I mean even compared to say Picard's reaction there and, and, um, Beverly's friends' reactions there. I mean, okay, obviously Beverly's acting weird and there's clearly something, you know, a bit crazy going on and so on. But I mean, Cisco is very, I actually quite like that in a way. I, I mean, I agree. It seems strange that he doesn't try to talk her out of it more, but it, it is at least, it's, it's probably the best scene in the episode, I think, is the scene between the two of them because he sort of says, well, you know, this is your life. This is your decision. You know, are you completely sure you're making the right decision? And if you are, and he does the same thing again in Rejoined, I think, you know, if you're sure you're making the right decision, fine, I support you. You know, even though in this case, it means I'm never going to see you again. I quite like that. I I mean, I I think it's, it seems mad because it's so obvious to us that she's making a terrible decision. Uh, And that's partly because we love Dax and we want Dax in DS9 and we think Star Trek is important and Meridian is not really in the world. I mean, it's in the world of Star Trek, but it's not in the plot of Star Trek and it's about to disappear from the plot of Star Trek for 60 years. And, you know, why would Dax want to leave Star Trek and go and, you know, exist in this other realm? Uh, So it kind of, we can't help seeing it as mad. On the other hand, I, I think... One of the strengths of the episode, just as a purely as sort of character uh, work and kind of drama, is both Bashir and, uh, you know, Bashir, who we know has been in love with Jadzia for a good period himself, and Cisco as well, are quite, um, they handle it well, if you know what I mean. And they're actually very supportive of her. And that is, you know, I found that quite a nice moment in a way. I, I think they make that work. The problem is, I think you're right. This is like, the, this is Jadzia kind of 1.0. This is before they worked out who this character was. But the weird thing is, you know, you mentioned the Klingon stuff. I mean, Blood Oath was way before this episode, I think. So they had already started to kind of delve into who this character was and making her a bit more interesting. This feels like a step back somehow. It feels like a step back into, this is very much a Jadzia story, not a Dax story, if you know what I mean, insofar as this is not someone who's had lifetimes of experience and this kind of, you know, old soul, whatever that, whether, whether that translates as kind of being quite sort of Zen and Yoda-ish or whether it translates to being kind of, you know, this sort of Curzon side that we see it in Jadzia later on of, of kind of being a bit of a rebel and a bit of a kind of party girl and kind of, you know, trying to embrace life and enjoy it. She just, she feels very, naive somehow in this episode and i think the episode kind of plays that up i mean you've got this weird scene where the guy i can't even remember his name the love interest drags her up a tree and and this is the this is the sort of supposedly the romantic moment between them but it's this totally depowering uh scene for jadzia i mean it's, it's a i think it's a weird scene on many levels first of all because we have to believe that she has a fear of heights that we never heard of okay fine that happens in star trek now jadzia has got a fear of heights but then why is this guy if she's got a fear of heights taking her up a tree and making her and terry farrell plays it you know she's kind of interested in the guy but she's terrified being up the tree well that's a pretty kind of obnoxious move to pull on someone that you're trying to you know impress and kind of hook up with because it's kind of it's a it sort of seems like a weird sort of power move somehow. Do you know what I mean? He's putting her in a vulnerable position so that he can kind of look after her. So it's weird. She's not, 
she doesn't seem like a very strong character who kind of knows herself. It sort of feels like she's just seen this guy and suddenly, you know, yeah, it's all about this guy. And you're right, he's not the most charismatic or charming or interesting guy. There's a bit of a sort of, I feel he has a touch of the Vedic Burial about him. Do you know what I mean? I don't know whether the casting director of DS9 had a certain type that she went for, but these, these, when they get in these love interests for these fantastic, I mean, okay, maybe Dax is, isn't quite there as the fantastic strong female character, but you know, DS9 has these two fantastic strong female characters, Kira and Dax, and their love interests always seem a little bit wet and a little bit kind of boring and a little bit kind of vanilla, uh, next to them. Do you know what I mean? And this guy is absolutely, not only a little bit vanilla, but weirdly, like I say, that these slight elements, I don't think he's intended to seem creepy or, or to seem inappropriate or anything, but, you know, you get this thing with the tree, which I think plays quite strangely, maybe more so these days than it would have at the time. I don't know. You get very early on this comment he makes about, you know, how far down do your spots go? Pretty forward for someone you've just met and you're having mm. dinner with, you know, to be asking yeah. questions like that. Um, so they start off on this kind of flirtatious level, but there's something about it the I don't know if it's the chemistry doesn't quite work. It it doesn't sell it. And the the weird thing is, I mean, as much as Brigadoon, yes, it's of its era, yes, it's very dated, yes, it's very kitsch, yes, it's kind of got these ropey Scottish accents, uh, yes, it's all pretty ridiculous, it does have a lot of charm and it does have a kind of palpable sense of old school Hollywood romance. You know, it, it, there is something quite romantic about it. Uh, it even has the song almost like uh, being in love, which became a sort of, you, you know, kind of a, a standard or whatever, you, you know, the song that kind of eclipsed the the show. It's got, it's got that charm and it's got that kind of romance through the lens of that particular era. I don't feel the DS9 episode manages to, obviously it can't recreate that on its own terms, but it doesn't manage to really translate that so that the romance feels quite kind of perfunctory. And I mean, Iris Stephen Bear, again, I'm just going, I would recommend the uh, DS9 companion as ever on this episode, because it's got a great, basically it's a list of everyone who works on this episode saying why they hated it, <laughs> what went wrong, and, you know, how awful it was. And it does sound like it was a bit of a nightmare to write. They were rewriting it at the last minute. They kind of couldn't make it work or whatever. Um, but Iris Stephen Bear also said, uh, you, you know, we had all these different problems. We were trying to create this society. Uh, we were trying to, you know, envisage this whole world. And then he said also, and how do you tell a love story in 30 minutes? It's really difficult. And it's it's also, you know, it's an episode that has, this is the A plot of the episode. It's weirdly, it's one of those episodes where I think the B plot is a lot stronger. It has this quite memorable B plot, which was the first uh, Jeffrey Combs episode of Star Trek. This is the one where he's, I mean, another weird story, uh, particularly side by side with this one. But this is the story where he's trying to get a kind of um, sex hologram of Kira, basically. And Quark is is involved in like trying to, steal her likeness weirdly kind of prophetic of all the you know hacked images and all this sort of stuff that we have today that's the b plot that's going on much more edgy much more ds9 much more kind of gnarly and quirky and weird and sort of seedy and then you've got this supposedly very innocent kind of romance going on in the a plot and i think they 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 almost work against each other somehow because they're they're so they feel so much like they could be in different shows. And DS9 obviously doesn't have A and B plots that, you know, nicely mesh together in the way that Next Gen might have done. You know, you do basically have two stories and they don't necessarily have much in common. But in this case, I feel like they're so much in different registers. It almost feels like you're watching two different shows and you're cutting back and forth between them. 
Uh, and one of them is actually quite entertaining and quite weird and strange and sort of compelling one way or another uh, and anchored by a you know a fantastic uh guest performance by jeffrey combs who you know as ever is brilliant and you can see why they kept getting him back because he's brilliant as this sleazy creepy slightly scary guy and the other you know you've got this lead actor who this this guest actor who is kind of a bit bland and a bit boring and a bit sort of of a cardboard cutout you know it's sort of and and that that's where you need you know the a plot is where you really need the episode to work not the b plot but somehow it's one of those ones that's kind of back to front it, it, it's a strange sort of combination isn't it i mean i was thinking that at the time like uh, the, the whole i mean i know we've discussed on a previous episode of primitive culture about the whole uh, hologram you know dubious sex sort of thing but that it's a strange thing to wedge into a romantic fantasy it's it's, it's really it's really odd it's almost like the flip side of this you know this intended love story to be a very sort of cunning <laughs> capitalist sex exploitation B plot, which is really weird. You know, it's it's almost like it's flipping the two the two extremes, uh, and I don't know whether that was intentional or not. But I mean, the, the, it's almost certain that the the initial plot, the initial plan was to do Meridian, which was written by Mark Gerard O'Connell, um, with, with with a few other people as well, and and then they obviously knew they they hadn't got enough story, so they they threw in this and so and they, they cooked this up, which is. Which is understandable, but I, th- I think you know, it's it's a, it's a strange blend, and I think I don't understand really what how how we're supposed to buy a story like this. I mean, it, it sort of it sort of also goes back to a, a more I think more of a simplistic way of telling of, of television of, of of making television because in this sense they had. Iris Stephen Bear had a dictum, you know, he wanted, he loved Brigadoon. He said, let's do Brigadoon. Let's do a cover version of Brigadoon. But what they didn't do is think, okay, how can we spin this? So it's not reliant on the audience believing for a minute that Dax, a main character in the series would give everything up after two days to run off with, with, like you say, definitely quite a creepy guy. The, 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 uh, his name is Daryl. I think it is played by Brett Cullen. Who is a decent actor, you know, but he's 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 known for sort of playing creeps. I mean, he, he plays he plays sort of a, a, a shady dude in Lost. He plays a real creep in The Dark Knight Rises. You know, those are two examples. Um, and in this, he's he's just quite intense. He's quite intense and possessive, I think. And you know, we, we, I was watching it to, with, with my wife, who's, who's not seen much of DS Nine, and, and we were watching it. And I said, "This is a famously bad episode." And she was like, "Yeah, he's he's like." he's awful. He's smug. <laughs> he's just not, he's not charming in any way. So it's like for, for Dax, who, like you say, has been established as a, as a, as a, as a wise, strong character is thrown into a story where we have to, the idea is to presumably sweep us up into some kind of romantic fantasy, but it's, but it's also pointless. You know, it all, it all just seems really pointless. I don't really understand what we're supposed to get out of this as an audience, you know, are we supposed to, you know, feel emotional when at the end, when Dax is caught in probably the worst special effects I think I've ever seen in my life. Like <laughs> certainly on TS9, you know, it's like a trippy Austin Powers, like weird thing she's in. Um, you know, we're we supposed to be really choked at the idea that she's lost this man when it's just, it, it even, even then surely audiences would have been sitting there fair, going, <sighs> Okay. Well, no, they'll, they won't talk about him next week, will they? And 
it's this these are the these kind of episodes i think are that you know a lot of people talk about what how they'd love you know star trek or television to sort of go back a little bit to how it was made in the 90s you know through in the network era but i do you really want meridian you know i mean this is this is the reality these kind of episodes don't aren't made anymore really because TV shows cut to the chase. You know, they they maybe too often, maybe too quickly. There is an argument for that. I mean, you know, as we've said before, you know, you know, series like Picard and Discovery could do with a few more standalone episodes thrown in there to explore character. I'm not saying that they couldn't, but equally, you know, a, a Meridian is so disposable to be so threadbare and pointless. You wonder what the entire, you wonder what the entire point was. It, 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 even even working as a cover version, and I, I think. It's and, and plus the fact it's such a strange film to cover anyway. Like, <laughs> you know, if you if you put a list together of, or I can understand them, cover, you know, doing a take on the Godfather in the Nagus, say, you know, you can you can understand that one. It's got a real cultural resonance, and it, it still has today, and it did then. But even in 1994, how many people were watching Star Trek and thinking, oh, do you know what film would be great to do a version of? Brigadoon, you know, it's like, <laughs> who who said who? So it really is. It really is strange. Well, and we I, know we know the answer. Who says who says that? Iris Stephen Bear. Iris Stephen Bear. And, you know, he's he's upfront about it. This was you know, yeah. Iris Stephen Bear made many fantastic uh, creative decisions on Deep Space Nine. This maybe was not one of them. Um, it's funny when you mentioned the visual effects. Uh, actually, my favourite of all the kind of sort of bitchy comments of everyone <laughs> who's interviewed in the DS9 companion. My favourite one is they go to the visual effects supervisor, Glenn Newfield, who says, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was basically, yeah, it, it does seem like it yeah. was one of those episodes where, where kind of everything went wrong. I don't know if it's as bad, like it could probably have been worse. Um, I don't know. It's just, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite, um, land it, it doesn't quite work and i mean i also i think yes it okay maybe it's of its time it's of that kind of 90s era uh in the same way as brigadoon is of its time insofar as yes we know she's not going to leave the show we know the stakes are being so, uh, are sort of artificially high but you could argue that about every episode where someone's in peril we know they're not going to die if they're a main cast member we kind of suspend our disbelief for some ex- to some extent if um if they can do it well, I mean, rejoined has a similar premise. Jadzia falls in love with someone. She, you know, ends up not working out. As I say, she ends up, you know, in tears at the end. And it, uh, it's a tragic love story, but it works really well. I think partly because, you know, first of all, they really sell the connection between her and the other woman. And it helps that they have this kind of backstory. They have this kind of years of history between them. And maybe it helps that there's this kind of tension because there's the, sense of illicit love and you know people who don't want them to get together and everyone is kind of anxious about it and so on so it kind of builds up it sort of builds up this not just romance but also kind of sexual tension as well between them that i feel we don't really get in this episode you know they just chat over their breakfast of peppers or whatever it is they they, they invite (laughs) them down for this meal where where no one eats because it would be a kind of continuity disaster they all just sit there poking around she she has a papaya at one point or something i think that she takes a mouthful of but other than that it just seems like a weird sort of um like a strange sort of peppery salad uh meal that's going on which presumably was meant to be breakfast so i don't know what's happening there in their slightly odd community but there's no there isn't really 
that kind of there isn't that chemistry between them and and as i said there's this weird as much as the guy can seem a little bit forward and you know maybe a little i don't know if he exactly comes across as creepy but i think maybe the presence of the b plot makes some of the things that he does and says in the a plot seem more creepy than maybe they were intended to because it's kind of priming you uh to to look at things in this different way but there's also this weird lack of um it's all supposed to be romantic. It's supposed to be kind of love at first sight and romance, and there's no sex. Whereas the B plot is all about sex. There's no romance. It's all just about sex. This guy wants to have sex with Kira, uh, so it's very kind of lustful and kind of you know earthy and 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 sort of grubby somehow. And it sort of raises these weird questions. I mean, Jadzia's decided to go and spend sixty years in you know as a pure energy being, basically, with this guy. Have they slept together in the real world? Is she going to be waiting 60 years before they do that for the first time? I mean, what's it, you know, you might not ask these kind of questions because you might think, okay, this is a kind of, uh, sweet little romantic episode and we don't really, you know, that's not family friendly TV in the kind of Star Trek vein. But this very episode is saying Star Trek can talk about uh, the fact that the holodeck is basically a vehicle for pornography, that, you you, you know, you can have this storyline, which is is kind of pushing the boundaries of what Star Trek can really uh, cope with in the B plot. But then in the A plot, it seems so tame and so kind of innocent and so sort of um, lacking in any real sexuality somehow between these two characters. And I think that is a real problem they they are like playing in different registers it would be like as if the original brigadoon i mean there's a b plot in the original brigadoon there's you know there's there's gene kelly and his uh love interest who have this quite sweeping romance and then there's the other guy who has this sort of wench who's after him and so on you know, there's this kind of other and, and there's another romance as well between the other couple of getting married and so on but you, you know you wouldn't i, I suppose the, the the guy with the wench you could say is it is in a different register but it's not it's not in a totally different kind of it's 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 still presented within the same sort of basic framework of this is the kind of film that this is and this is the kind of humor that we're dealing with and this is the kind of um world that we're presenting whereas i think the ds9 episode it feels very much like the story in the gamma quadrant is a kind of next gen episode effectively and the story on deep space nine is a deep space nine episode and never the twain shall meet it's funny though because the 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 actual brigadoon itself was was not brilliantly well received at the time for similar reasons. Like one of the main critics of the time, Bosley Crowther, who wrote for the New York Times, he described it as curiously flat and out of joint, rambling all over creation and seldom generating warmth or charm. Now, I mean, it's it's hard to really watch a film starring Gene Kelly and not feel there's charm there. I mean, that that's going too far for me because he is just naturally charming in a way that Brett Cullen in this episode at least, just isn't. And Terry Farrell is, but not in a way here, in the, in the, in that she's played so submissive and naive in many ways, and like you say, sexless, that, you know, you don't get that same level of, 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 of charm and allure in many ways, you know, and, and sexuality that Dax brings when she's at her best, and it's strange because she's done it before this episode and she definitely does it after this episode. So it's like they, they purposely tried to strip away any sense of, you know, pushing those edges in order to create this, this weird blend of love story, but then also tech, quite techno babble heavy story. I mean, this is where it is a bit more TNG maybe than TOS. 
it's sort of got a mix of everything. It's it's got it's got that TOS idea where you know DS9 didn't do many episodes like this, really, did they? They didn't do many episodes where the the, the ships are exploring. You know, at the very beginning, Cisco says, "Oh well, we you know the Dominion are out there, but we're still going to explore the Gamma Quadrant." You know, and he's like, "Well, really? Like, surely, like, it's not really that kind of the Defiant wasn't built for that anyway." So they're they're, they're pushing, they're cheating a bit there just so they can do this premise. So you've got that aspect that they're out there doing a bit of exploring. And then they, they stumble upon this weird planet with a nice little village and they go, that's very TOS. But then the TNG side is all the, you know, let's, let's fiddle with the quantum matrix signatures of the, you know, the whatever. And, the, and that, and you didn't get a vast amount of techno babble in DS9 either, you know, when, when it was, you know, at its best. So it's sort of a hybrid of all these different kind of Trek shows and stuff. And that's not me knocking TNG because TNG has done some great episodes, but you know, TNG was the techno babble show as was Voyager. Could, and Voyager could easily have done this episode as well, obviously. In fact, it probably would have sat better on Voyager than TNG because, you know, you could have thrown, I, I don't know, you could have thrown half a dozen of the Voyager characters. You could have thrown Harry Kim into this, you know, Tom Paris. Uh, you know, you, you could have done it with some of those characters. So it's a strangely sort of, it, 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 it's not fixed in a specific series. It, it's, it's a a very anodyne sort of Star Trek idea that, is played out in a very sort of anodyne way. And and I think you know, that even extends to the culture itself. You never really get a sense of who these people are. They're just a, you know, in, import bland, you know, human looking, slightly human-esque sort of culture here with what a planet where they live in one little village with an entire planet. And you get no, you get no sense of, you know, he says at one point, Durrell, doesn't he, that they were, they were part of a, like a research or scientific exploration team who got stranded you know, so they're clearly of a certain race and they're not the, the only ones of their race, but you don't get any real sense of that because the episode sort of vacillates between, on the one hand, it's doing all the things with trying to do all the quantum signatures with sorting out Meridian, and on the other, you're supposed to be involved in Dax and Deral, and then it will suddenly cut back to pervy Jeffrey Coombs, you know, on the station. And he's like, well, like, what, what, what is this? And what if it feels like they, they didn't really dial into what could have made this feel particularly like a romantic fantasy. You know, you, you, if they'd have made this planet far more, I don't know, mystical or strange or really sort of amped up the, the fantasy aspect as opposed to the sort of science fiction side, it might have worked better in a weird way. If it had felt more like a fable, you know, Where, but, but, in, in, but it doesn't. It, it just feels like a wonky sci-fi concept that has a really flat romance at the centre of it that you don't believe for a minute. Or I, I didn't I didn't believe for a minute. Well, I, I didn't believe it for a minute when I watched it in 1994. And I don't believe it now, you know? <laughs> so it's a shame because I think I, I think there is room to do a real sort of fable, you know, romance. And, I, and you might be able to recall this better than me, Duncan, but did, has Star Trek ever done that? You know, have they done a real sort of romantic fantasy fable that works as a, as a one-off? You know, as a one-off sort of concept? I don't know. I suppose it depends how you define it, doesn't it? I mean, I feel like the original series did have those episodes where, you know, Spock or Kirk or McCoy would, you know, have a kind of romance and fall in love. And and you would feel like there was that world that they were getting involved in. I mean, even, for example, the episode where, uh, you know, it's Kirk and all the Native Americans, basically, and he has a wife and he has a sort of life there. I don't know. For me, that works. They sold it more. And maybe that's partly because they were closer to that old school uh, 
model of romance and so on, they could kind of tap into that in a way that, say, 90s Trek can't really... They can't play it in quite the same way. They have to sort of play it differently. Now, by the time you get to something like Rejoined, they can play it as really good... I mean, I, I, this sounds like a derogatory word, but, you know, I don't mean it in a derogatory way. Uh, sometimes Star Trek can do really good kind of soapy stories, by which I mean, I, I don't mean like soaps like EastEnders or Neighbours or whatever, but I mean the kind of emotional drama that you might get on, a, a, you know, a really a quality show like something like ER or something that, you know, from that kind of era that would have really good dramatic interpersonal stories. And I think Rejoined manages to sell it because they kind of go for the emotional angle and they kind of go for the characters and they sort of make it work. This one, it, it is may, maybe it is a servant to too many masters. Maybe it is trying to be sort of too many things at once. Maybe it's not really sure whether it's a next gen kind of techno babble heavy episode or a, like you say, a Voyager episode. I mean, yeah, Voyager could have done this story, but then Voyager wouldn't really need the conceit because the fact is, uh, if Voyager do this story, they're always moving on anyway and they, they're never going to see anyone that they leave behind. So it's kind of baked in. In a way, you're right. It does, it does almost feel like a Voyager story. And of course, Star Trek does these stories where someone falls in love and are they going to leave? You know, are they not? And then in the end, something has to happen so that they don't leave and they end up coming back to the ship sort of heartbroken one way or another. DS9 can do it, uh, but they don't quite manage it in this instance. I think it's interesting what you say, you know, about the society the fact that they were supposedly originally this kind of shipwrecked expedition, you know, what their sort of history is. What are the rules around, you know, why is it that they have submitted to this uh situation? And at the beginning of the episode, there seems to be all this stuff about, you know, can they change the terms of that? Can they kind of make them more stable? Can they kind of do the tech, the tech on it effectively? And then it sort of stops being about that. I mean, in the original Brigadoon, the rules are kind of clear. They can't leave. So for Gene Kelly, he can't take Fiona back to, you know, 1950s New York with him. He has to choose to give up the modern world, basically, and go and live in this weird bubble in the past with her. He has to sort of make that decision. Now, interestingly, in the DS9 episode, the way they represent it, it could go either way. And initially, the intention is that the guy will go off with Jadzia and presumably go and live on DS9. And she starts talking to him about how they're going to go to Quarks and play Tongo and and so on. And, and that's another scene where he becomes slightly... There's something slightly uncomfortable about it because once he realises that she has friends and a life back home, he seems to go a bit cool. He gets a bit sort of ambivalent and a bit funny about it. Having said, oh, I'm going to come with you. I'm going to, you know, basically come back to the real world in a sense, come back to the future, you know, get get out of this uh, weird sort of pastoral nothing place. Uh, which you'd think they might want to do, these people, if they do remember being shipwrecked there and they weren't there of their own choosing. You'd think more of them might kind of want to leave. But then he gets to this point where he uh, decides he doesn't really want to go with her and he doesn't really want to do that. And it turns out she's going to have to stay with him. So the whole kind of tension of the episode is kind of contrived on one level because we sort of think, well, you know, why should she have to give up her whole life and her whole career and everything for this guy if he's not really willing to do the same? I mean, he sort of is willing, but 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 she makes the decision, no, I'll, I'll, I'll make the sacrifice for you. You don't have to make the sacrifice for me. 
And of course, it turns out to be a big mistake because she can't make that sacrifice because it doesn't work. And therefore, they're separated for 60 years. And the stupid man goes back into, you know, the void without Jadzia Dax. And she gets over him, you know, however long it takes and goes on with her life. I mean, who knows? Do we imagine that Esri Dax is going to go back, you know, 60 years on uh, and and check in and, and see if this guy's still interested? I don't know. But, you know, he made a really bad call in that instance. And I think part of you know, when we're looking at it and we're sort of criticising this guy and the way this character is played and the way this character is written. I mean, maybe we're also coming at it from the point of view of, you know, we think Dax is awesome. Uh, he's punching way above his weight <laughs> in this situation. Y- you know, why on earth would he not leave his boring world and go and live on DS9 with Dax, which sounds like a great idea, but he's sort of moping around. He wants her to go and live in the boring planet with him. So there's a kind of element of... You know, I don't know. He doesn't deserve her, I suppose, maybe uh, is is part of it. And it's difficult when you're writing a new character who's coming in and is the kind of love interest for the regular who we've fallen in love with, uh, you know, in some cases more literally than others. But I mean, he definitely isn't one of those characters who comes in and you think, yeah, I can see why she goes for that. I can see why she really likes this person. I mean, even Worf, I know a lot of people don't aren't wild about the Wharf dax relationship. Wharf is a bit of an idiot. Wharf, in some ways, maybe is kind of punching above his weight as well. But at least you kind of get, you, you might think, okay, she's kind of mad. Why has she gone? Why does she go for this guy who's so bloody annoying half the time? But um, there's something there. And he's that, you know, he's a character, a rich character, even if he has, you know, some annoying uh, qualities that you probably wouldn't look for in a potential partner or husband or whatever but he's a rich and interesting and kind of a, a character with some kind of depth this guy they don't they don't sell that and yeah that's hard they've got half of a 45 minute episode uh, to do it in and you know that is tricky but i feel like they don't even that there are episodes star trek episodes that manage to do a kind of romance of the week and get that kind of connection, get that kind of uh, spark. I mean, something like Counterpoint on Voyager, where you've got the character who, and maybe it helps actually in that one, that he's kind of the villain or is he the villain or what's going on. But, you know, you get immediately more chemistry, more interest, more kind of, you can sort of see why Janeway might be attracted to that guy, even as questionable as he seems, more than you really get. You know, what is it for Jadzia Dax who does, after all, have eight lifetimes of experience and all this stuff, even if Jadzia herself maybe isn't as experienced, that she sees this guy and and is willing to, you know, chuck in her entire life, her entire career and so on. It, you know, it's a hard sell. And I think maybe that's part of the issue is they don't quite manage to sell it. Brigadoon, I think we sort of buy it a little bit more, partly because we know the Gene Kelly character, he's in this sort of slightly loveless relationship already he's actually engaged to be married to someone else but he clearly isn't that keen on this woman and he meets this you know lassie of the of the highlands or whatever who's very um you know in that sort of old-fashioned hollywood mgm musical kind of way very romantic and very charming and very appealing uh so you can sort of see why he would be bewitched by that um there's nothing really bewitching about Whatever his name is. What do you say his name is? Deral. Deral. There you go. I can't remember his name. (laughs) This is not a good sign. But I think that's exactly it, I think, in that when, you know, Bria Doon is selling a a, a sort of timeless fantasy in many ways. You know, I think think the fact that it's it's an old-fashioned Scottish village is quite quite crucial. 
you know, she is a, a, a beautiful maid from a different age, a more innocent age. You know, a you know, I, I, I said to my wife said, what's what's Brigadoon like then? I said, well, imagine like a musical uh, 50s version of Outlander. And that's basically what it is. Right. <laughs> Essentially, it's this it is this romantic sort of fantasy, not just of a love story, but also the idea that you can find this connection to the past and to more maybe a more innocent pastoral sort of life and i think that's kind of what is ends up being appealing to gene kelly you know he's from this uh you know 50s new york you know he's like you say he's in this he's in this relationship he's not he's not invested in so she's an escape you know she in many ways is an escape this life is an escape and it, that's part of the fantasy i think of it in at that point as well especially in that sort of post-war Hollywood era where it was all about, you know, this was the MGM musical era, you know, Gene Kelly and his uh, partner, Arthur Freed were making all these amazing technical sort of musicals. Like, like I say, like singing in the rain, like an American in Paris, all these things that were selling Gene Kelly as this super charming American, you know, uh, dancer icon who, who would get, who would get swept off his feet and sweep people off his feet. And be, and you would, and audiences go, they go to buy into that. You know, whereas I think with Meridian, the problem is that really, I don't really know what Dax, like you say, I don't know, even beyond Dural as a, as a character, as a man, because like, you know, you don't, he's, the, the Brett Cullen isn't charming enough innately to, to pull that off, nor is the character written on the page well enough to pull it off. But even putting that aside, what is appealing about the life she would have with him? You know, what, what would, you know, because th- there's more than the sum of the parts there. It isn't just about this passionate love for this one man who she's met in two days ago. There has to be more to that, you know, especially given she's going to become like an energy being. It's it's more than just downing tools. I'm going to go and live on a farm with this guy, you know. Oh, pop round, Cisco, if you're in the area. You know, there's none of that. She's gone if she does this. So I don't really know what that is. In Brigadoon, I understand it. You know, as, as kitchen, as silly and old fashioned as it is. With Meridian, I think it's, I think it's 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 in an era where I mean maybe it's just in in some senses too, it exists in too much of a postmodern era, you know in in the nineties there's there's maybe too much underlying cynicism for audiences to re and maybe even in the, in the writing itself to really buy this idea that Dax would end up engaging in this romantic fantasy in order in order for it to work. You know, it, it, these kind of stories, they can't, you, you know, like you say, you can get a Star Trek episode where a character falls in love with a, with a, a one shot character. And there is a level of belief, even if it stretches believability and you know, at the end of the day, they're going to be back in their job. You can still get something out of it as a viewer, as an audience member, it can still sort of enrich the character, but this doesn't enrich Dax in any way. You know, next week she's forgotten him, you know, or, or um, by, by all accounts, she's forgotten him. There's no... There's no key. She doesn't, she doesn't, when she's getting with Worf, talk about, you know, um, you know, I still feel for Doral. You know, there's none of that. It's, he's gone. Like, you know, it's like, it, it, she, she has a bit of a, a sulk in a corner, you know, because he's gone, a bit of a sad, and that's it. And it's like, okay, so what, how does it advance Dax? But equally, what do we get? And, and I think the trade off there is different than Brigadoon. And it's why it's, it doesn't work as well. Because at least with Brigadoon, you understand the fantasy that Gene Kelly. And the audience is supposed to buy into, but that doesn't happen with Meridian. And I and I think had it aired, had it been made in the sixties, like you say, I think that might it might have been a bit more successful. I think it doesn't really advance Dax at all. 
is the answer to that question. Whereas I do think an episode like Rejoined does advance Dax as a character because it kind of adds depth and it adds kind of, uh, you know, we, by that point, maybe we see her as this slightly free, you know, she's no longer this kind of naive slash sage character. She's a bit more free spirited. She's a bit more fun. She's someone who, you know, in other episodes, we have a kind of awareness that Dax is the one who often cracks jokes, doesn't necessarily take everything too seriously. We see that she can, you know, she can really have her heart broken. She is kind of vulnerable. She's emotionally vulnerable in a way that maybe we wouldn't expect from the way that she seems to have such a kind of joie de vivre and such a kind of um playful enjoyment of life in a way. I, th- I think that episode really does something uh, with that character and maybe that's partly because we've got to know by that point you know and it's not that much you know it's only less than a year later really but we've got to know that character so much better by that point we've kind of got more of a sense of, of somehow who she is they, they kind of crack the character more by that point but I think you're right in a way this when you say DS9 is more cynical maybe that's part of it as well it does feel like it would work as a next gen episode better maybe it does feel like even as you say it might work better as a Voyager episode DS9 has a different sensibility and it, it clashes slightly with the slight, with the sort of easy romance of the Dax part of the episode. I think, I think there's also this bigger question, as you say, you know, she's not only giving up her life for this guy, she's potentially going to go and, um, you, you know, live in this rather dull environment. And I mean, it's a bit of a stretch to accept that Gene Kelly's going to go and live in this weird Scottish village where, you, you know, <laughs> everyone speaks with these appalling accents and, and kind of, you know, goes around singing and dancing and, and, and whatever. But at least it's kind of, there, there's a kind of charm there and we can, and, and we get a glimpse of how hellish his life in New York is and it all seems very brash and miserable and, and sort of shallow and horrible. I feel like Star Trek is always trying to sell this idea that the sort of pastoral, utopian kind of technology free world is somehow better you you get it even in that episode as i say where kirk goes and lives with the native americans and has this kind of more this simpler life and i feel like star trek often struggles to sell that idea because the fact is star trek is a fantasy of a kind of technologically advanced a wonderful technologically advanced future and most of us watch it because we'd love to live in that world we don't want to go and live in star trek and then end up giving up on you know giving up all of star trek and going to live on a planet that's basically a bit like you know this one a few hundred years ago or whatever i feel that it's a hard sell it's always a struggle when they try to make these sort of slightly utopian uh communities where everything is simpler you know insurrection i think does fail for the same reason it it doesn't even have the charm that's kind of madcap charm of the village in brigadoon it has the same sort of slightly fake slightly phony sense of community it doesn't really feel like a real place that village in insurrection and in the same way i think you know okay it's it, maybe it's it's a lot to expect of this you know as i say half of a, a single 44 minute episode but again it doesn't really they, they don't really ever quite manage to sell that I, I feel like if anything actually you know with picard the closest that star trek has come with is with nepenthe of sort of selling a sense of a, a simpler life actually being meaningful or actually kind of being uh kind of making sense of that ds9 does try to do it towards the end i suppose when you've got cisco you know planning to buy this plot of land and build a house and kind of essentially go into retirement effectively on bajor but they never actually have to show it to us they never really have to kind of um you know show us the nuts and bolts of that or kind of what that would look like it's it's kind of just a dream 
And I think it is hard to buy that Jadzia Dax, who's, you know, a woman in her kind of what, early mid twenties or something, that that's really what she dreams of doing is, as you say, going and like being a farmer's wife, you know, going and living this kind of simpler life. It doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't really, especially when the option is there that he could come with her and live in Star Trek, you know, I mean, it's a no brainer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's it's uh, and I think ultimately what if 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 Star Trek learns one lesson from Meridian, it's yeah, don't try and cover version 1950s musicals <laughs> for God's sake, just just leave it alone <laughs> because you know, it's not going to end well, really is it for anyone. The only thing I would say about this episode is that it is notoriously a failure of an episode. I mean, as I say, if you read the DS9 Companion, you can read pretty much everyone who works on this episode, apart from Terry Farrell, who obviously, you know, had quite a nice time and enjoyed it and probably didn't mind climbing the tree and etc. and got to work with Jonathan Frakes and that was fun and and so on. Uh, Everyone else seemed pretty dissatisfied with it. It's not a great episode. I didn't mind watching it. Watching it this week... It didn't offend me. It didn't, you know, it was kind of innocuous. I actually, as I said, there were moments in it that I enjoyed. There were scenes that I enjoyed. I like, I think the whole B plot, uh, although it's weird as hell, uh, and it potentially has some, raises some kind of questions around, you know, you could ask, is the kind of, is the, the fact that he's punished with this sexy image of Quark, is there an element of, racism homophobia you know you, you, could, you could kind of go into you, you know what 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 is that that that's his comeuppance as he gets to go to bed with quark or whatever but i mean but but i think maybe that's taking it a little bit too seriously um it's sort of a kind of it's it's like a sort of shakespearean bed trick you know it's one of these things you have to in the in the generic terms of the story you have to sort of accept it on its own terms even though in reality it would be more problematic or more dubious or whatever and and it works because it's kind of revenge on kira's part and it kind of feels satisfying and it sort of humiliates both quark and the and the creepy guy so so i think the b story for me basically works quite well that almost makes the episode worth re-watching partly just to see jeffrey combs and that character uh, and that kind of character interaction and, and also you get kira and odo have some great character stuff you know where she's pretending odo's her boyfriend and odo's like completely you know, knocked sideways by this and sort of not, not sure how to deal with it. In those scenes, it sort of feels like the DS9 writers are like, you know, that, that, that they've upped their game. That's where they're kind of doing interesting stuff. They're finding an interesting, a quirky, a gnarly story in there. The A plot, I don't know. As I say, we, we were watching this during lockdown. I found it less bothersome than I expected to, knowing that every time I've previously watched this episode, it's annoyed me. It didn't really annoy me as much this time. I just, I sort of thought it was a bit disappointing. I sort of thought it doesn't really work. But at the same time, it made me wonder, you you know, like when you're on an aeroplane and you watch like a crap film that you wouldn't have bothered to go and see (laughs) in the cinema, but you actually find yourself enjoying it more than you expected. And I don't know whether that's to do with altitude, whether it's to do with like, you know, being in this weird environment, whatever it is, you can kind of enjoy simpler pleasures. I don't know. So it didn't... um, like I say, maybe this is my lockdown brain. My critical faculties are suspended. I could see all the problems with it, but I sort of just went along with it. You know, they do have to knock out whatever it is, 24, 25, 26 episodes a year. Some of them are going to be crap. This is one of the crap ones. It's not, you know, there are worse crap episodes of Star Trek. 
if you know what I mean. But it also made me think, oh, and also I should say the other episode that I went and watched this week in, in preparation was there's an episode of Lex. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, uh, weird, oh, uh, years German ago. kind of vaguely soft, porny sci-fi series mm. Lex, but they did a Brigadoon, uh, spin-off you know riff episode called brigadoom uh where basically they go <laughs> they discover this this um again this thing that emerges out of nowhere this sort of cloaked shielded community uh but instead of a planet it's a sort of floating uh theater with this kind of awful musical theater troupe in it and the entire episode is basically a musical where all the characters are forced to act out the backstory uh, of one of these characters so it's sort of exposition by way of really ropey uh musical theater numbers and that uh, having watched that i have to say which is just i mean lex is a weird series and it obviously is selling itself on the kind of the freakiness the kind of porn elements the kind of you know all, all this sort of in your face stuff and then for it to do this quite bland boring installments in musical theater it really uh, anyway i, I would not i it could be worse, I suppose, is what I'm saying. You, you could be inspired by Brigadoon and write an even worse story than Meridian. Uh, and if you want to see it, go and watch that episode of Lex because it's truly dire and, and, and dull. Whereas at least the DS9 episode has that B-plot going for it. So I don't know. But the other thing it made me wonder is, you know, they were working on this right up to the wire. They were rewriting it constantly. They were sort of trying to get it right. Is there the potential for a good episode in there. Do you know what I mean? Could they, if they'd captured something in the A plot that they captured in the B plot, if they'd given it that level of interest, they'd given it a bit more welly somehow, you know, was this only another pass or two away from being, a, you know, maybe an unremarkable, but a decent episode and it didn't quite get there. That's sort of what I ended up thinking watching it this week. A bit like Insurrection, actually. It's a similar feeling I have to Insurrection. I, when I first saw that movie, it made me kind of angry because I went to it, you know, having seen First Contact and loving that and thinking how exciting and brilliant it was. And Insurrection just didn't really do what I expected of it. And and I do think as a film, it's a disappointment. But sometimes I sat down and watched it. I think we did a podcast on it a year or two ago where I sat down and watched it. I said, actually, this time around, I didn't mind this film. You know, it didn't it didn't annoy me. I, there are things I enjoyed in it. It's quite sweet. It's just, it's not the film that it could have been or it should have been. And I suppose that's the thing with this episode. You know, is there, was there a kernel of a good idea in there that could have, could they have pulled it off somehow? Or was it just, as I say, a, a sort of doomed, a, a brigger doomed idea from the start? <laughs> you know, that should never, they should never have touched it. I think it's a bit of both. I think maybe, I mean, the, the, the insurrection aspect is, is a good, it's a good comparison in some senses. And I think at least what worked with Insurrection is it had stakes. It had some level of incident incident plot to it that it was trying to do. And, and, and Meridian doesn't really have that. Meridian is solely sort of focused on the will Dax, you know, do this. Well, will will, you know, and the love story there really. Whereas, I mean, if they maybe tried to angle it a little bit more into having some real stakes to it, in that, you know, who knows the, 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 I mean, I mean, these people are supposed to have been in this situation for millennia. They talk about how it was millennia when they're right, when they, when they were separated from their race, you know, what if their race suddenly finds them, you know, and it's, you know, there's real problems there. I'm not saying it's got to be end of the universe stakes or anything like that, but just have it be, have to be more of an actual plot, you know, incidental plot rather than it really being that retread of Brigadoon in that sense and having to sort of, 
be propped up on this really flat romance. I think had they had they done that, maybe if it hadn't been quite as reliant on that on that chemistry that isn't entirely there between the two actors and putting Dax in this position, it might have worked. But I think they should have just steered clear <laughs> from from the <laughs> beginning. I think I think they could have, they, you know. It's it's it was very disposable. And like you, I didn't I didn't I don't hate watching this uh, watch this or anything like that. You know, I don't I don't I don't find it completely unwatchable. But it's it's just there's nothing. There's, it's pointless. You know, it, it really is a pointless hour of television in in almost every way. And I think it's it doesn't enrich anything. It doesn't re- it didn't enrich me. It doesn't enrich Dax. It's not it's not particularly. It doesn't look particularly good. The the script isn't great. I just don't know what it's for. Really, it, it did at least allow me to watch Brigadoon. I probably never would have watched Brigadoon, which is okay. You know, I'd say if you're going to choose, watch Brigadoon instead. <laughs> that's that's yeah, a, a, yeah. more entertaining in some senses, um, and it's interesting. And it's got a few good dance numbers it as does. well. I mean, who knows? M- maybe Meridian just needed one or two good dance <laughs> numbers, and that would have you know, perked maybe. up a bit. It <laughs> needed that's the true. all singing, all dancing. I mean, Lex went for it right when they did this story. Yeah. They they you know tried to do the the singing and dancing. I mean. Who knows? I mean, maybe that's part of it is they took the kind of central conceit, but they didn't really capture the whimsy. They didn't take mm. the sort of wackiness. I mean, it's a silly musical. It's a silly, it's a yeah. ridiculous story. And at least the musical plays that for charm and kind of whimsy and kind of, you know, it, it, it it's silly. They've got these huge dance numbers where everyone's in kilts and doing kind of mad Scottish things and you know okay maybe it's a bit ropey and maybe it's a bit uh, you know there was a kind of debate at the time I think should they have filmed it in the Scottish Highlands or should they as they did film it on the MGM sound stages and I think wisely they decided to film it on the sound stages because if they'd taken that cast to actual Scotland I think it would have been even more of a sort of strange uh, disjunct somehow between fantasy and reality but at least the fantasy they presented as, as kind of weird and idealized and sort of unreal as it as it may seem i mean it is a bit like the scottish planet in next gen or or the fairhaven episodes in voyager at least it has that kind of charm at least it has the it has those production numbers you know it has these huge uh big scenes got a big epic uh visual storytelling and so on musical theater storytelling going on it's got some pretty decent songs it's got you know one really good song it's got some pretty decent dance numbers and so on they're sort of throwing more at the screen whereas the ds9 episode they don't really have the resources uh to do that you know even the special effects that they need they're they're struggling to kind of get those to work it doesn't have as many bells and whistles sort of distracting you from the hollowness at the heart of that kind of the, the, the hollow emotional connection really at the heart of the story and i think that's why it, you know if it was going to work it would have to work based on a really strong connection that was going to be sold very very quickly in terms of screen time between these two characters and that's the one thing that is conspicuously lacking really in the episode i think i think it it, it should it needed to give into the whimsy definitely had it given into the whimsy we might we might we might be talking about it differently twenty odd years on, or even at the time. Well, you know, I actually <laughs> love. I mean, there's a DS9 episode, funnily enough, that most is not a popular episode. The episode Fascination, which is the one that's kind of a Midsummer Night's Dream, basically on DS9, and Waxana Troy comes along and everyone falls in love, and it's very silly and very, I think, very funny. I mean, I find that episode very funny, and it is quite whimsical and it is quite uh, ridiculous. And you know, it's sort of it leans into the absurdity of the situation. And it's also got kind of sweet moments and kind of 
elements of, of, of maybe not realistic romance, but kind of sort of generic romance, if you know what I mean, and so on, all thrown in there. I don't know. So I feel they could do it, but maybe not this time around. So yeah, I think maybe, you know, don't cross that bridge, uh, pass on by, <laughs> come back the next day when the village is, you know, is, is no more. And uh, Absolutely. one that was, you know, maybe better better left in the Gamma Quadrant. But, yeah. you know, there we go. You win some, you lose some. <laughs> well, it's been fun taking a tour to the Scottish Highlands via the Gamma Quadrant, but talking about Brigadoon and Meridian is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. Not wanting to be spoiled about this book, I would suggest then not listening now, read the book and then come back later. And then you can enjoy the whole freaking feature of this glorious analysis that we're going to give this. I shot JR. Sorry, I, I thought we were getting into spoilers. My my bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just like woke up from a dream. I was in the shower. Um, <laughs> the orb but if you think about the fact that Cisco is with the prophets at this time and section 31 is going to try to kill the prophets maybe that's a way for Cisco to re-enter the story and play his role in representing the prophets to overturn what section 31 is trying to do and to champion that idea of truidic and, and end the season with that message that religion is fine for those who want to believe it, and it's also fine for you not to believe it. Earl Grey. One of my notes I made on this episode is that Riker is a cosplayer. He likes to put on the native costumes of the planets he goes to. Yes. You and I have started making a, a Riker Angel 1. Cosplay. Ewan, Ewan wants it for SLB. So. Nice. Yes! That was one of my notes as well, was Riker's left nipple. <laughs> Doesn't leave much to the imagination, but yeah. To the journey! Quick snap poll. Suzanne, would you prefer Neelix yes. to cook for you or Chell? Chell. Chell? Zach, Neelix or Chell? <laughs> Neelix. Oh... <laughs> oh. I see Leola root in your future. <laughs> Lots of it. Oh yeah. Give me those exotic ingredients. Yes. Chell is my man. I mean, you can have na- you, with Chell. You can get like all those puns, pun food items that he made. <laughs> exactly. It would be like Bob's Burgers in space. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended already.